Welcome to part two of my web programming crash course with Brett Hudson and Ben Business. If you haven't already, I recommend listening to part one first. There, I described the context of this conversation in more detail. In this part, we talk about the architecture and development of a server program. We discuss fault tolerance and concurrent request handling in Node.js. I get some tips on how to set up an efficient workflow and how to manage a split production and development version of my web server. And we touch on the topic of Docker containers and wrap up with a discussion of OAuth. With that, here is part two of my web programming crash course. So the next big one is now I've sort of put what I think the two sort of building blocks are. So there's the, the way code runs by interacting between these nodes. And then there's the data storage that you can equip on one of these nodes to know what, like to remember what has happened there. Uh, and then there's like the application you build that's actually running. So like those are the two pieces and then you, you're writing code. And in my case, like I said, I'm writing Node.js and I, I ended up there's just, I'm going to give the run up to this from the perspective I had before I started. There's, you know, back in the day when I would install a random, like when I would install XAMPP or XAMPP or whatever it is, they would give me PHP and I didn't even think about it. It's like PHP is the language you use to write the back end of a website. That's what it is. But then actually, no, a website is just a thing that responds to these HTTP requests like we were talking about. And so you could write that in C, but like nobody does because there's some things we're going to get into about how web applications need to do certain things. And then it just turns out there are other languages where they've people have put more effort into making that really easy in these other places. Node.js comes up a lot. I like it for my case just because a lot of services that give you a tutorial, if they're only going to do one language, they pick Node.js. You know, it's not necessarily the, the language that like more serious applications, like if you're looking at a, a really serious uh, uh, service that might cost you money, they might actually want you to use Go or C Sharp. They might expect that. But uh, if you're just looking at like random little things, they're like, no, 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 you're scripting, no JS. Like this is what we're going to deal with. So it just means I get more, the most example code available to me as possible. Like without, I don't have to go and write my everything myself, myself for these little things I'm interacting with, right? They, they've got their Node.js example. So that's the really only reason I picked it. But the, the overarching thing that I understand that they're trying to solve with these like languages slash frameworks slash environments that you use in a web server is basically this concurrency problem, right? Is that you've got requests coming in and, you know, if you have two users on your website and they're both interacting with you at the same time, you want to be able to handle that. There's also this thing that's called a webhook, which is basically where you tell one other service here's an endpoint that I'd like you to come to. And it's not that they're, they're not a user browsing you. They're another web server sending you a message about something that happened on their end that you need to know about. And there's interesting security stuff about that that we'll get into here because now that means there's like, there's cool stuff that your server does that anyone could do if they know how to talk to you and trick you. So that's weird and interesting. But I think the, the very simplest question that I have to get started is, there's a lot of different ways I could imagine splitting things up or keeping things together. To, and I have no idea what's going to be easy and what's going to be more like headaches. So the, the very most obvious thing I could think of to do that some people have recommended is you have requests come in, you decode them, and then you send the rest of the work off to a different program. So that if it crashes or if it takes a while, there's no way it interrupts handling other requests that are happening. 
And the other thing I could think of to do is to say like, hey, Node.js and Express, the framework that like handles incoming HTTP requests is already doing all this a current, uh, concurrency stuff. Trust it. Don't make your life more complicated by splitting things up. I don't have any sense of like gut intuition about which way is going to be better. So I'm curious what you guys think. I write a lot of try-catch blocks in my day-to-day programming um, because when you are working with the web, it means that you are interacting with other entities across the web that may follow the rules and may not. You do not know what data is going to come at you. Um, so decrypting or, or like uh, grabbing the data and turning into something your your program can understand, try catch that. And if it fails, send back a a um, you know some sort of four hundred that says like invalid data sent or could not process this request. Um, and that that would be the the end of it for for me. Um, as far as what I might be sending back and forth, the web has kind of ubiquitously decided that JSON is the the standard. Um, it, it encodes well, it unencodes well. Like every single language out there has multiple libraries that, that handle that. Um, and if you're using Node.js and then JavaScript in the browser, it's built in because it's JavaScript. <laughs> as far as the question of like splitting things up with like different processes, are you talking about the like reverse proxy sort of pattern that you might, have? I don't know if you've seen that term thrown around. I have seen that. and I don't know what it means. So I'd be interested. You could give me the tutorial on that, but what I'm talking about something I think is slightly different. I think it's a little less webby actually. So the idea is, and you could imagine if you're a C programmer that what I'm doing might actually be necessary because if you're in Go, they've got Go routines. They've got tricks for this. If you're in Node.js, they've got async await. They've got tricks. Oh, for I this. see. If you're in C, you get a request. You don't want to. You don't. You you are in charge now of not crashing, and not taking forever at the same time, right? And like figuring out what to do if you're stalling and you've only got the 16 threads that you spun up at the beginning of the program, and five of them are now stuck, or one of them crashes, and you have you have to like. There's just disasters there. So the idea would be if you were really going to write a web server and see what you would probably do is get the data, look at it as quickly as possible without doing too much work, and then spin up a separate process and just monitor if that process succeeds or fails. But it would do all of the work of, of you know, making further requests and and whatever else needs to get done because that's the only way a C programmer can make a clean sandbox. Like try catch works half the time, but there are like tries really a C thing. So depending on what operating system you're on, you're actually doing something else. And you know, if you're on Linux and you're trying to figure out how to do a sig- like a, a signal handler, you are in like so much pain. So instead of all that, you would just be like, I need a separate process. And so there are some people who recommend that as just a organizing principle anyways but i don't that in some ways i can understand why that would make a lot of sense it's like separate process separation could be a good tool here but it seems to me on the other hand that like something like node.js or go aren't they explicitly written at a high enough level that you don't want to be doing that anymore is that the idea or is it still a good idea yeah i mean i think what you're talking about is how to get concurrency right because you don't want one if, if you're in naive single-threaded world and one request is taking a long time, every other request is blocked waiting for that one to happen. And you don't want that. 
So on some base level, you do want concurrency. And so you could use processes, like you said, you could use threads. You could come up with some other kind of scheme involving other processes or threads and communication between them, right? Um, and that is certainly the kind of thing that people do when they're working with C or C++ or something like that. I do think that for, for your case, yeah, like Node has its own kind of concurrency story, which is based on this single threaded event loop where you just try to like slice up the work so that no one thing takes too long and you sort of keep the queue moving along. <laughs> um, you know, so, so like you've seen that all these node APIs have a callback function um, or are structured with promises instead of being a synchronous thing. So, you know, all of these node APIs for like, open a file, read a file, write a file, those kinds of things are all structured with some kind of callback thing. And the reason is to like keep the thread unblocked so that other things can keep happening in the program, right? That's the JavaScript concurrency model. Something like Go on the other hand just tries to give you green threads through the language runtime. And so you don't worry about the, the callback situation there, at least not as much. Okay. I mean, I think for, for your case, you would probably, I mean, on some level, you need to be using the features of Node anyway. <laughs> um, you need to be structuring your Node code so that it's not blocking everything on synchronous stuff and it can keep the concurrent things moving along. So Okay. I, I think to, to, I want to get to the Node stuff and maybe it'd be easier to go there and talk about that now. Uh the main thing that has to happen is, in my mind, two things. And there might be more you could tell me if I'm like missing really other ob obvious other stuff. But the two things are concurrency, yes. And also kind of the try-catch part. Like, I don't want this thing to crash and fail, right? And and right now that's one problem I have <laughs> is that whenever there's like a little typo in my JavaScript, there's no compiler to tell me what happens if my server crashes. And try-catching everything would be... At least, well, I don't know. Does try? That's a good question. Uh, if I try catch a block of code and then do something that's not like an API error, but it's just straight up like invalid JavaScript operation, like I tried to dot on a null, that'll be an exception. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One hundred percent. Try catch will find any error, whether it's malformed JavaScript, you trying to access the properties of something that's undefined or null, uh, an API error, network timeout, you name it. Okay. As long as it's valid syntax, then you should be able to try catch it. Okay. There is there, there is the challenge of making sure that you are catching everything in all the right places. Mm -hmm. And there are probably going to be layers of your program where an error in this layer doesn't get caught and the whole process still crashes, right? Um, mm. You know, so if you have... So, so one common thing, if you're using like this express framework or whatever, you know that the structure of it is basically just these handler functions that yeah. take some kind of request, return some kind of response. Certainly if you like throw a try catch around everything in there, it'll catch everything that happens in there. But if you mess something up in the sort of outer machinery of setting up all of the routes and handling data or whatever, it's very possible that exceptions in that code could still cause things to crash. Um, so there, there are layers and like yeah. on some level, you probably need something that 
restarts the process when it crashes or something like system D on, on Ubuntu or other, I don't know what Linux distros have system D, but okay. you know, those sorts of like operating system tools for keeping processes running. I feel like you kind of do just need multiple layers inherently, but in general, I think in, in pretty much any situation you can put some sort of try catch, some kind of blanket error handler around kind of the whole request that is just like, if I get an exception here, return a 500, right? The internal server error, at least the server stays up. It yeah. keeps responding to other good requests. Yep. Some requests crash and burn, but the whole process stays up. Yep. And then within that, of course, you can have more granular error handling. Yeah. And in a structure like Express has, you can likely just make that blanket handler some kind of middleware, mm -hmm. yep. just sort of a, a wrapper function that is composed with the other functions that it just puts everything else inside the try catch and returns the 500, right? Yeah. So you can kind of just organize that all and get all that stuff out of the way so you don't have to do it on every single request. Mm -hmm. That's correct. That makes sense. I like I like the sound of that. I, I As much as I, you know, would chafe against having to use exceptions, there's already APIs that I'm dealing with in Node.js that explicitly use exceptions as the mechanism for telling me something that I want to know. So I kind of am just like, well, this is this is the structure of this system it, like it all makes sense logically and i don't see any issue with that a part of it that is not the catching errors but the the concurrency half that is also just nitty-gritty of node.js stuff is this whole async away thing and i know ben has walked me through this before and i do not want to get too far <laughs> into this because i think if we try to explain what a promise is without visuals to the podcast listeners, they will tune out. I don't yeah. want to explain what a promise is. But uh, what I will say is that I, I'm, I, like, I think that I'm misunderstanding the structure of it a little bit because my understanding is that it's... What you said earlier kind of like tied in with my misunderstanding, Ben. So you were saying that JavaScript is a single-threaded event loop structure. And Mike code i pretend in my head like it's multi-threaded like i i in my head it's like whenever a request comes in one of these javascript callbacks gets called and it takes however long it takes and it runs in parallel with the other ones but it sounds like you're saying that's not actually true and the reason i think that that's what's happening is because i put an async on the function and then every time i call an async function i say a hey, wait on it because otherwise um my program crashes because i have a promise instead of what the thing that i want again not going into it basically the a wait keyword just says hey this function is async which means it would be a promise but turn it back into a normal function in my brain like that's what my brain is telling me to think but that has to be wrong if it's a single threaded event loop where i still need to care about how long one block of work takes between things right like what is going on there i mean the the loose mental model i would give is that an async function is actually split into many tiny functions in between all the awaits and those are the things that are actually like running on your event queue as it goes so it's syntax sugar for because if you imagine that you didn't have any of this, you didn't have promises, all you have is callbacks, then you're going to be writing some code that does some stuff. And then you call an API that is going to call back to you when it's done because it's this asynchronous thing. And so then you provide a callback that is like, 
execution resumes here, basically. And then the rest of your code happens there, and then you call another one, and you sort of get this nesting structure of callbacks. But you can think of each individual callback then as like, that's one function that goes on the queue. And then the next callback, that's the next one that goes on the queue. The next callback, that goes on the queue. And async await is basically just sugar for gluing it all back together into one function. It just looks like a function again, and it's just chunked up in between the awaits. And at the top of that tree, something is handling those. Like, like if you're using Express or whatnot, that's kind of just hidden away from you. It's like we're not gonna we're not gonna show you where exactly we're dealing with all these promises and all these awaits and async functions. It's just like Yeah. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, it's usually the JavaScript runtime that's doing it, right? In a browser, when you call set timeout, you can't implement set timeout in JavaScript. That's an API provided by the browser where it will just call that JavaScript function after the time has expired. So that function will just be put on the queue after a certain amount of time and it will run as soon as you know it, it gets to the front of the queue to run. Okay. Okay. Let me let me pitch this back to you. I think I get it with this I think I get it again. I, I think I I had this once upon a time because Ben explained it to me once. And then I started using it and my brain completely constructed the story the wrong way around. So what I had thought was that JavaScript must be parallel, like it must have multiple threads when I started using this async await stuff and that I'm using it wrong because what I'm doing is every single time I have an async function, I just await that function or await that function. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to pronounce that. I just, I just await the function that's async because I don't want the promise. I never want the promise. I don't even, I don't even care. I, the last thing I want is the promise. I want the thing that the function is supposed to do. And that's like my mentality about the whole process, which means that all my code looks like it could have just been functions all the way down because it's just like the, the whole thing is just me waiting for things that could have been asynchronous, but not actually letting them be asynchronous and I'm waiting for them. But what you're saying is a wait doesn't actually mean wait for this to finish. No. The way it would if it was like C code and you're like, hey, this this is a function here that's going to run in parallel and then you're going to join later. So my mental model was like, run this thing parallel and then join right like on the next line, join to that thread again and then launch a thread to run another thing and then join that thread again. And you're saying, no. Correct. It is not that. It is syntax sugar to let you pretend that's what you're doing. But what is actually happening is it is internally reconstituting that as a bunch of little separate separate blobs that it can run as jobs that are chained together in like a giant complex job system, essentially. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it sounds like I'm doing it right, though. Like the fact that every async is an await, unless I needed to do something fancy where I wanted multiple promises in f- like that weren't lined up on each other anymore. But all my stuff, I'm basically just like, okay, if we can get this request back, then I'll do something. Otherwise, I'll send an error. And the await lets me pretend like it's threads that I'm joining to, but actually internally is actually totally different from that. And that's just the way you do it. Yeah. Well, and and doing that is what allows your server to actually handle multiple things concurrently. If you, I'm not sure exactly what types of things your, your web server is doing, but suppose that it's doing something typical like load up a user's profile, load the last hundred things from the database, render that as HTML somehow and send that back to the user and say that that takes, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll exaggerate and say that it's a hundred milliseconds to do this whole thing. 
if you in JavaScript write the handler function to do all of this and you use all synchronous APIs that do just stall and wait, like they, they do block the whole queue until they're done and you run it all through, then your server is only going to be able to process 10 requests a second sequentially because there's going to be one request being handled at any given time and it's going to start, yeah. it's going to hit the database, it's going to sit there blocked on the database and it's going to you know proceed from there. Whereas if at each of those longer points where it's like talking to the database and, and waiting for IO, if that's a point where you have one of those awaits, that's a point where the handling of one request actually stops and another request's work is now at the front of the queue. And so it can keep sort of round robining all of the requests, little mini jobs through the system in order to keep them all happening concurrently without being parallel. I get it. I get it. So the, the only thing then that I have to watch out for is that it's almost like it's parallel. But if I had, if I for some, somehow managed to write my own code, it was not an asynchronous call, but it took forever and it was between two awaits, that would stall my server. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can try that, throw it into an infinite loop somewhere and you will stop handling all requests. Okay. Fascinating. Is there something that would, like if I wanted to write my own code that had to take a while to run, would I need to then call out to a separate process? Or you would need to chunk the work somehow. You could use like a generator function, for example, which is like, it's it's a more coroutine like kind of thing where you can like yield a value at various points, right? There, there are some other mechanisms for dealing with that, but you would have to chunk the work yourself to make sure that you're not just sitting there blocking for that whole time. I think that in practice, people do tend to deploy kind of a whole, a whole fleet of node processes that are all happening at once. So they'll be handled. There'll be some internal concurrency. There'll be some external concurrency. Okay. You throw a bunch of concurrency at it just to try and keep things smooth. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. I, I, I think I get the picture now. It makes sense. There's something kind of magical about the async await thing from a C perspective. That's like, this doesn't, the code looks like, it does. It just doesn't click easily for from my perspective. But it does seem like it's something I can work with, given that like idea of it being the a weights are like like uh, yields kind of. Um, yeah. Okay. So another piece of this sort of how to architect my application thing that isn't the concurrency and the never crash part of the problem is. The, the dev prod thing we touched before. And that is a smaller piece of another thing that's like the whole workflow that I build around doing this. So let me explain to you, because I haven't I haven't built a dev prod split thing yet, and I want to get some tips on what that might look like, if it like how seriously I should take that for my case and what that looks like in practice in lots of projects, all that. But before we get to that, let's take one step back, and I'm going to tell you about like what I do day-to-day -day writing C code and what I do day-to-day -day when I'm web programming and you can tell me why I should, do, how I can do better. So <laughs> when I'm writing C code, I have my editor up. I type, 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 and I'm in Forcoder, of course. So I can hit F1 to build, and I can hit F2 to run. And building might take a moment, and running, you know, uh, takes however long I spend running it. But the the buttons are just right there. It, I don't switch to a different program. There, I can just I I know how to hook up everything so that if I can put it into a batch script and hit a key, I'm now testing the thing I care about. By contrast, 
And you, you, a part of the like the funny thing is, I would have thought going into this, like the point of a scripting system and the web is that it's not the there's no build times. The workflow is going to be better. <laughs> what I actually experience is I finish writing some code and I'm like, well, now this needs to be on the server. So up until recently, I was like completely confused about how to do this, and I would git commit that and pull on the server. I have since switched to SSH, so I can just copy that over to the server on my command line. And then I have to log into the server mm -hmm. and launch the application, because it's Node.js. I have to like go in, go to the thing, be like, Node, and then the name of my script or whatever. Like, I just get it going. So that's two thing, two separate applications that I've now interacted with, two different terminal or one terminal plus some like login thing or something. Like, there's several steps there. And then I'm switching to my browser to like hit a thing that triggers it to run. And then I get the, my exception trace back from Node.js and I'm go, oh good, where did I screw up? And go make a couple of tweaks on my text file. And this, it's like, it's like a, it feels like a full 30 seconds to a minute and lots of little things that I am fiddling with just to find out like my next little step of iteration. That is a little painful. Yes. And I'm wondering what you guys do to like get that down. Is there a way to get that all the way down to like, I hit a couple keys and I'm seeing if it worked or not? Yes, there are. I mean, take it away, Brett. Um, so the first thing that I would do, the most painful thing that you're doing is that you're uploading to your server every time. Instead, you that, that node index.js command that you're running, you could just run on your computer and then go to localhost 3000 or localhost port 3000 and you've, you've got it there. That would save you a lot of time because then you're running it locally instead of on your theoretically production server. So that's, that's the, that also ties back into the original idea here of having production versus development versus local versus potentially testing, which development and testing are usually used interchangeably, not always. Um, so you kind of have like these three different versions. You'd have like a production on a server, you'd have a development on a server, which would probably be like a beta branch or something. Then you'd have your local, what you run individually. And it's a Venn diagram, depending on how you configure it. You can have it be three separate circles, or you could have some overlap where like, Development and my local use the same database, blah, blah, blah. But I digress. So the first thing to getting it faster is develop locally. Develop in a way that is completely offline. You could disconnect your Wi-Fi. Everything will work. Um, that That is going to be your most ideal like speed benefit for, for development. The second one is there are tools that will automatically restart your node server when you have edited a file. Um, and if you're storing state on your node server, this is going to be disastrous and cause you to need to regenerate that state every time. Um, but if your node server does not store state and that's all external in a database and you load it in on startup or whatnot, then restarting it every time you make a change isn't going to be bad. The thing that I personally use is nodemon, or as some people call it, nodemon. Uh, and you basically create a nodemon.js file, um, and you say, like, here's my start file, here's what types of file extensions I want you to restart on, and then you just type nodemon into your terminal, and, and you forget that it's there, you close, you, you minimize it, and every time you save one of those files, it's going to restart your server, so you can go to your web browser, click it there. Um, 
And then if you really wanted to make it so you didn't have to change programs, let's say you're using VS Code for this, um, terminal pops in and out at the bottom of, of the, uh, the program. You could then also get some sort of extension that would allow you to put a web view on the side of your VS Code. So then you could save, have that web view, click the button, make sure it you know, executes the request that you want, get your whole thing. To be honest, I'm I'm so used to years of alt tabbing over to my browser to do stuff that I have just never actually bothered. As long as you can quickly restart the program and have it running, I don't usually feel like I'm too slowed down by that. But alt tabbing is alt tabbing to the tab is the least annoying part. And honestly, once I'm actually looking at a web page that I care about how it looks, I wouldn't expect any less. Like. That makes perfect sense. It is more so, I think the Nodemon thing is more up the alley of the stuff I'm missing. It's because there's definitely like this rigmarole of, if it was local, it would also just be a matter of putting it on a batch script. But the fact that I have it not local and I don't have Nodemon together really put me in a, in a bind there. The other thing I am worried about and the reason I haven't been doing it local, and actually I haven't thought all the fact that it, you could dev if your Wi-Fi is down, which is cool. Most of what I'm doing is such lightweight stuff connecting a few services together that a lot of what I care about is responding to webhooks. And we haven't actually got to, to webhooks yet. Okay, fair point. <laughs> but I was going to ask, is there any way to make that not suck when you're doing local? The Oh, well, go ahead, Brett. You, you know more about the like tool space and, and all of this stuff than I do. I, I'm still curious to hear what you wanted to say. Um, so if you were doing that, what I would do is there's a program called Postman. Um, that's, that's probably my first go-to like for people. It's, it's pretty easy. Um, you, can, you can save requests. So basically, inside of their interface, you say, hey, I have this request. I want to hit this endpoint with this data, with this body, this, this header, blah, blah, blah. And then you click Run. And it shows you what the response is. Yeah, it's just an it's it's an HTTP like a build your own HTTP request tool, and you can just create and save and run arbitrary HTTP requests. You can yeah. put them in folders and groups. I, I think there's like three layers of groups. There's like here's a project, here's a here's another thing, and then here's like a folder. I don't okay. I can't speak to all that. So like you can organize it super well as well. So. So it'll so let me see if I got understand. So Postman, it's not like it's magically Postman. Postman. <laughs> so Postman does a thing where cut off the service while you're developing, figure out what their webhook data looks like once, and then build a little simulator that will tell like send that data to your program over and over again and yep. you can figure out if you're processing it correctly. But all you're doing is saying generate the the data once with the real service data and simulate it locally. Yes. And so with with this, if you want it so every time you save you're sending that data, Postman is not going to be the 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 way to go because you have to go click that send button every time you want it to. That sounds like the right way to do it because it's it, I mean it's, it doesn't solve everything magically. I have to capture test data essentially, mm -hmm. but I like I like organizing myself around, hey, I've got a little like test case to go until I've got that working pretty mm -hmm. well, and then I'll gather mm -hmm. more complex tests, and that fits with the way I want to think about it. So I think I will try that out and, and you know see if it makes helps me make progress faster. Yeah, Brett, I'm really glad you mentioned that because that I, I hadn't considered that, but it's absolutely the the right 
like suggestion for this kind of thing. At my last job, by the by the time I left, I had like twenty Postman folders with like a hundred different requests in them. That is just like basically like every API endpoint we had on the product. It was like get users, get shifts, get locations, get positions, get whatever, create user, you know, log in, log in with bad data, log in with whatever, right? I can just have all of those ready to go. And then whenever I want to just like test a particular API endpoint, I pull it up, bam, and then I can change the headers, I can change the body, I can change whatever, right? So so you're absolutely right. If, if you're not using something like that, then like that is just a huge, huge quality of life benefit to just be able to make HTTP requests more easily, whether that's for webhook reasons or anything else. So yes, I mean, yeah. I, so I, I'm going to run up to that again because I think I, something clicked for me, which is real web programmers. So not me, but you guys work on products where you actually develop an API for other people to actually use. And all I'm when I make a webhook, I am not. I'm kind of making an API in the same way, but it's a very like I am being told by someone else. It's a callback. It's a web, it's the web API version of a callback. Some other service told me, we're going to send data to you, and here's the structure of how we're going to send it to you, and you just implement it, right? And so I'm making an API, I'm not designing an API, but I am making an endpoint for someone to send stuff to. Which gets me to another thing that I noticed is concerning, which is, uh, people can send stuff to my webhooks. And so the, like, the services generally walk you through how not to screw that up. Because they also care that you like don't get confused and and do dumb stuff in depending on what kind of service it is and how that might be sensitive. But they're like, hey, you are actually required to verify it this way, or it's like you can put it in insecure mode, but you're not allowed to. Like, please don't put that in. Like, you need to start using this. And so the way that works is again they give you a secret, but this time the secret they're giving you or. I don't think they're not giving you a secret. This is like the way the RSA or the encryption works. They're actually giving you the public key and they keep the secret this time. And, and either way, the point is no one knows how to send data to me except the surface. And that way I don't get fooled into doing responses as if like, oh, somebody did some interaction on the service over here, but it didn't actually happen. Someone's just sending me data on the webhook. They found my webhook and they're sending me pretend data but since they don't know the secret they can't do that anymore and that part of it i'm mostly comfortable with but the part of it that does concern me then is then occurs to me people can send stuff to all my endpoints all the time and and i'm wondering like i'm not making an api for people to interact with so i don't feel too vulnerable that like i really got to figure out how to deal with that but even if i'm just serving web pages and dealing with webhooks People can trigger my server to start running in certain ways, and I have to only do interesting stuff when I can validate it. But what do I do about the fact that like anyone could send anything to me at any time? Is you know what I mean? Like I understand some of that is just the security stuff we already talked about, but they could also like um, this is the DDoS thing I think, where they could send as much as they want to me at any time. What do you do with (laughs) knowing that that like is coming in? Just hope nobody hates you. <laughs> I mean, that's the sort of, there is an extent to which it's inherent. Like people can absolutely spam you with requests and they can try to find the slowest, most computationally intensive endpoint on your server and they can try to spam that with something. There are things though that you can do to avoid a lot of the common pitfalls. If you have a server, sort of a, a like front end server program like Caddy that's handling the HTTPS for you, um, they'll be there to try and guard against 
malformed requests against huge requests. Like, you know, one thing that people could do is just like open the connection and just start flooding you with data, right? And just like say like, no, 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 this, there's still more. Trust me, there's still more, <laughs> still more body coming. And like, you know, you can, you know, but, but servers will have some kind of max size. And at some point they're just like, nah, they cut off the TCP connection, right? So there are things like that. But I, the, the general case of DDoS protection, I th like certainly out of scope for me. I don't know if Brett has dealt with any of that kind of thing, but I put my site up and have the DNS go through uh, Cloudflare or Cloudflare and just let them handle the DDoS and hope that they, they got it all figured out. That's that's what most companies do at this point, I think, is just farm farm that problem out to someone else who is constantly monitoring the network and constantly monitoring botnet things and trying to trying to shuffle traffic around to avoid this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean there's like that's that's a whole industry. <laughs> I think that like I I mean, there are obviously people who know how to do that stuff, but it's not me. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Well, in a way that sounds like good news, which is that I don't need to do anything about it. Yeah. It, or I'm not expected to. It should it should be handled. Well, I'm not sure if this is what you're saying, but it's like whatever can be done about it can't be done by me. However, going back to your other example, that is absolutely something that you are uh, going to want to handle yourself, such as. I'm getting all these requests for these webhooks. How do I make sure it's from the right place? Right. 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 And like I said, the, the service usually cares. Well, they have to provide the public key for that to even be possible. So I guess the other piece of it is kind of a question, but it's almost like, yeah, you just can't trust. Like, I already know I can't trust the data that comes in ever. De facto, I guess it just makes me nervous. And I was wondering if in general, there's anything you can say about that? Or if this is one of those things where it's like, yeah, that's the where the programmer diligence is all we've got, and you need to work on it. <laughs> well, the the front end server thing, like a caddy or an nginx, like I mentioned, does provide you as the programmer some level of guarantee that it's like, hey, at least my program is not receiving a malformed HTTP request because it will be the thing that actually like handles the HTTPS certificate stuff. It sort of parses the incoming request, makes sure that things check out, and then it forwards the request onto your program in a nice safe way. So as the programmer, you know, that's that's another common thing that people do. It's it's essentially just like another case of use a library, but you know, they're using using a common sort of quote unquote battle tested implementation of of parsing messages and handling all that stuff gives you some peace of mind as a programmer. Yeah. yeah, I do have, I mean, Caddy is what I'm set up with already, and I don't really understand what it's doing for me. In fact, I, I was not even aware that it was the one parsing HTTPS, so we stumbled upon a new thing I needed to, to find out about the low-level details. I knew that my ex Express app was receiving them. I thought it was doing the parsing. But it sounds like you're saying actually, you know, the first layer of parsing and handling HTTPS happens at the level of caddy. It makes sure that the request itself, like, okay, I just got an HTTP request. Does it have headers? Are they formatted correctly? I just got right. a body. Does it exist? It's not going to validate that the body is what you expect, but it's just going to be like, right. is this request a full, complete thing that is going to be able to be read by whatever server takes it? 
Yeah. Both are going to be parsing it, but Caddy is going to be parsing it for like structure and safety. And then your server is going to actually be pulling the contents out of it yep. with more confidence. Yeah. Okay. That, that is good to know. And it makes sense. So there's one last piece to this. And then we got just some like little miscellaneous cleanup to do at the end. But the last piece on this, how to build a web application architecture thingy, uh, connects these two issues we just talked about. So I've got web hooks that I'm a little concerned about, but I, I feel more confident about. And I've got dev prod workflow stuff. And the way that they connect is that I'm looking at the two of those and I'm realizing that if I were, if I were told, before I had started doing any web programming, that web programmers do a dev prod thing. I'm like, oh, that's analogous to me as a C programmer where I have the shipped version, like version 1.5 is out, and I am hacking away at version 1.51 over here. And that's the only thing I have to think about is when I go to ship the next, so the only difference is which one is out and which one is in. But actually, there's a couple of other differences. So like they have to have separate databases because I don't want my testing to affect real users. I need separate webhooks because I don't want to treat incoming data that's for testing as if it's really for users. And I also don't want to lose real data and for think that's for testing, right? So it's like those all have to be separate. So it's like this entire system of relationships has to be duplicated, right? That's the only conclusion I can come to is that I am like they're separate. And then maybe like uh, maybe if I have a local, there's some overlap like Brett was saying. But I, that's like a part that I started realizing like the only thing that – as soon as I realize that it's not a program, like when I'm making a C program, it's like when version 1.5.1 comes out, it goes out and the thing I had in development just gets copy pasted to, to prod as in chip. And, and then the new dev is whatever I do tomorrow. Whereas this, it's like there, there, there's this network of relationships that I set up by, by telling different services by webhooks and having different IP addresses for different things that means it's not a simple copy paste. And so I'm wondering how do I not turn that into like just the entire process? Like it feels to me like I just end up doing the whole same thing twice and I get to copy paste like the code, but everything else is. Well, you've discovered why people do containers. So there's that. Okay. I mean the, the, like the the whole containers and like container orchestration thing is a response to this realization. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Docker. I guess that's the more familiar term. For a lot of people, but you you're correct that like the the web app is not just a single program. It is this whole collection of related programs and configuration and so on. Like there there is not one clear artifact. And things like containers and Kubernetes configs and things are attempts to kind of like push all of these together into something more like an artifact that you can push around. I don't think you need that, but that is, you are correct that like there is more to it than just like deploying a program and, and it's out there, right? It's, it's not the same as just shipping a new build of the game to steam and then players download that game and run that game. Um, I mean, what we do on the handmade network website though, is really pretty simple. I mean, it is essentially just, we can kind of update the different parts piecemeal. Like we don't really need to update our database very often, but we do need to update the actual like server program more frequently. So we have a script that will just like 
build and run the latest version of it. We do have the config separate. Um, the config is just stored one on each machine. So the things like those environment variables that need to vary are just stored one per machine. But yeah, we have separate DNS set up for the whole thing. It's a whole separate server instance with its own copy of the database and so on. What we've tried to do is to just, I mean, that's, that's the only thing that server does. And we try to keep it very straightforward. It has the database, it has the server, and that's basically it. Um, as soon as you start doing more, then I don't know, it does get kind of hairy. If you have multiple apps on your server sharing the same database instance and stuff, like. Yeah, yeah uh, I'm really hoping that I have, just... <laughs> I have one program that I'm actually talking about, even though I'm talking about relationships to services, I'm really talking about just the one program that I hope I'm hoping to write and not like a, a, a fleet of different client pieces and server pieces. And like, I don't need a microservice architecture lecture. Yeah. Um, so there's still stuff to that that's a little unclear. So like, like I said, the, from, from the way I'm looking at it, it's sort of like webhooks are like these pointers back at me. They're, they're function pointers, but they're pointers back at me. And if I have two servers, one for developing, where I do my testing stuff that users aren't supposed to see and that isn't supposed to affect, like, it's not supposed to cost me anything when I do stuff here, uh, or it's not supposed to cost me too much, uh, that is my dev stuff. And over here on production, all the pointers need to point somewhere else. So I do have to go and configure other services separately just just to have that set up, right? Yeah, I mean... One way or another, on whatever third-party service it is, you will need to make that separation somehow. I mean, some services have, like... So, so like, Stripe, for example, has an explicit, like, test mode. Like, your account comes with a test account. That, like, that's just built in. And so you have test credentials and real credentials and, like, test users and real users. Like, that's all built in. On other things, though, you might just, like, need to make... Make two of them. A, make another account yeah. or something. Right. If you if you make another account, then you can get another set of credentials and you can set it up like a whole new thing. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. I didn't want that to be as all like that was the inference I made. And I was like, oh, boy, I hope not. But that sounds mm -hmm. right. Um, you said that one thing that you were using gave you like a prod key and a test key. So it sounds like they yes. provide it for you out of it the box yeah so i've i've encountered it both ways i've encountered ones where i was like so confused because they like the first stuff i worked on was so small it uh -huh. wasn't doing that and then as i've explored around i bumped into a few more ones that are like no, no no here's your test and your production keys they're separate and that's when it occurred to me like that's how you do the separation but those services that aren't giving it to me make me build yeah. the separation yeah. on their end yeah. there's a blog article i'm i'm working on right now about this exact thing actually about mm. having whether the the program you know automates it for you or if we put that burden on individual programmers um because it is really annoying having to do two things and then it's an extra overhead and then you know inside the interface it'll just look like two different users rather than like a test in a, a production so it might not have like warning signs all over saying hey this is test data like blah 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 or the alternative right. like yo you're working with production data don't screw anything up oh yeah that's always a fun one is when you like i <laughs> it, thankfully this was just like the company content marketing blog but i did take down the company content marketing blog because i accidentally hooked my local like wordpress setup up to the real production credentials and then upgraded things. 
And then it was like, oops, time to upgrade your database. And like, it broke everything and it was very funny. So yeah, those, those sorts of credential mismatches are, are spooky, but. Okay. Got it. That, that's, yeah, like I said, I sort of started to, to be able to infer that, but I wanted to run by you guys that I was doing the reasonable thing. The other, the other thing, uh, that I wanted to ask about is if I have this dev server and it's like test data, is there, is it like, possible and a good idea to make that hidden so that random people can't monkey around with my dev server when it's up and how do you go about doing that i mean you can put it so many ways put it on some domain where nobody will find it or you could put like other forms of authentication on it that only like you could imagine for example having some kind of special header that you have to provide on all of that and otherwise it just like rejects everything you know, little, little things like that. But at the end of the day, if it has to be public online and it has to be receiving like webhook requests that aren't going to include your magic header, like what are you going to do? Right. These things have to be public on the internet somewhere. You could like start it up and shut it down whenever you're developing so that it's not just always online. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like, I mean, because I can't keep it running anyways, that's already what I'm doing. Um, (laughs) Okay. Well then you're fine. (laughs) But, but yeah, I, I, that's probably what I'll continue to do because that seems like the easiest way like obviously i need a separate dns just so that i don't have things pointed at the same thing uh i mean at the extreme you start setting up vpns and stuff like that right like companies will will have mm -hmm. entire access schemes that require authentication to the vpn in order to get the connection to the server at all and you know you have to tunnel through their things and so on and like nobody you don't need that for a small thing. <laughs> just okay. very, very basic defense things, and even just mm-hmm. obscurity are often. Okay. Yeah, and it's not like there's it's it's all tests, so it's like nothing sensitive is on there. It's for for the most part, it's more so just like it's it's more so like you wouldn't show people your your debug viewer unless you were specifically talking to developers and be like check out my do you i'm just like in my head i'm like there shouldn't be a button on my website that's like see the weird screwed up one where spider-man is the only user um yeah okay that is all of the big stuff like i said there's a little miscellaneous cleanup here at the end so we already touched docker i don't think i want to do docker pretty sure i don't but it has come up on a couple of different places where people will be like you can try this out it's easier if you put it in docker here's the thing for that if you're not going to do it underneath here's how to install it like a different way and i'm like i don't have docker all i've ever heard is like c programmers making fun of docker <laughs> so i don't want to do it but it already came up once i know that it has something to do with emulation somehow that's like as much as i know about it it can you guys give me the quick rundown so that i'm not like a to- like just totally out of uh, uninformed about what docker is and why it's comes up i think the layer one mental model is that it's basically a vm the it it is isolated from the rest of the system. It doesn't see files outside of its own little file system. Um, it has its own little process space, so it can't see what other processes are doing. So in a lot of ways, basically like a VM. Where it's not a VM is that it's not actually running a kernel. It's sharing a kernel with the other processes on the system, but it's just using operating system features to isolate it away. So my understanding is that like, the Linux kernel itself has features like C groups for managing process visibility and process CPU and memory quotas. It has overlay file systems so that you can like restrict a process's view of files. 
And so a container is just sort of achieving something like a VM without the overhead of actually running an entire operating system kernel. Yeah. Okay, so the, the language I know to describe the same thing is a sandbox then. It's, it's a way to run a program inside of a sandbox where you're like, I want you to have access to exactly this much of the computer and nothing else. Yeah, it's a sandbox then. Here's the big thing though, is that within Docker, because you're configuring like which OS you might want to use for it or like, and then providing all the uh, commands, you are guaranteed to have the same exact output no matter what. Because if you run something on a Windows machine, on a Mac OS machine, on a Linux machine, you are not guaranteed those, uh, that the things will run exactly the same. So it's it solves the problem of, it works just fine on my machine um, by containerizing it and creating this image of instructions to run. It'll do it inside of this container. It'll execute those in an environment that's guaranteed to be the same every time that image runs through its instructions and then it'll get deployed. That way you can deploy it to, uh, you know, maybe Amazon's AWS cloud and Google's cloud and Microsoft's cloud. And you know for sure, for sure, that those servers are going to run the same on all three vendors, even though they are three very different companies with different philosophies. Like you are going to get the same thing. Well, and, and even like different Linux distributions often will bungle so many things because just the environment's different. This program, this utility, this DNS resolver, this whatever, they're always implemented differently on different distros, right? Whereas when you use a container, you're building up from the base kernel no distro stuff and then you layer in the distro stuff you want so you can ship a container based on ubuntu on a like arch linux linux distro that's running docker and the docker container is not going to be using any of the like arch land system stuff it's going to be using its own stuff so that's another practical benefit of the same sandboxing, I guess, is that it's like the outside environment can't affect it. <laughs> yeah, let me let me run run that back because I'm, I'm piecing together this using the words I understand. So I think I'm following based on the things you're saying. The the understanding I'm getting is that it's sort of a two faced. Um, uh, it's got it, it 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 solves a problem facing in two different directions. One, it, the sandboxing is at least what I was understanding before is that if you wanted it to access something like a real port on the host machine or a real file on the host machine, it could do that, but it couldn't access things if you didn't allow it. Is that true or is that? That is true. Okay. Okay. And then the other part is sort of like the the thing you normally assume about a VM, which is that it creates an internal structure, which is independent of what the host actually looks like. So from inside the container, yes. the file that I'm controlling might be called ABCD, but actually I configured that on the outside, the host might actually have a different name for it. And and on a different machine, I could configure the same container or the same Docker container thing to still work the same way and still point to a file from the host, but it's a totally different file on that host than it is on the first one or something. Is that an accurate picture? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I get it now. Uh, I can follow web conversations one step farther than I used to be able to, which is cool. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't think you will probably need to do that. Um, it adds another layer of process management stuff and like another layer of, of software to maintain and like, if, if the benefits, I think, only start to appear 
when you are trying to deploy the same app to lots of different servers for lots of different reasons and you want to get more consistency, right? Because that's where you start to be like, well, we want to use a you know different, cheaper server for our test environment, but now everything's breaking because it's on some different version of something. And, you know, that sort of thing is, is a pain and isolation can get you benefits there. But when you have like one prod server, one beta server and local development, it's not really worth it. I mean, especially when for like five bucks a month, you can have two servers that are like completely identical in every way. And like, you can even take backups of them using the cloud services and just be like, nope, I just restore the backup and I've got my little nice little checkpoint of all the system config I want. You don't you don't need to take that all on yourself. Um, it is good to at least know what it is. Um, and also don't let anybody shame you for thinking about it like a VM. Cause like <laughs> when I, when I was getting introduced to it, the DevOps people at my work were like, it's not a VM. I'm like, it is basically, I mean, it's sort of like giving you the same benefits. Like it's that style of isolation. It's just implemented differently okay. and more efficiently. All right. The last one, this could be a nothing burger, but uh, it has come up in a couple of the things, and I might actually end up interacting with it, and that's OAuth 2. Mm -hmm. And it's a thing where whenever I see it, people are like, oh, yes, you can implement an OAuth 2 provider. And then someone else is like, well, all we need is your user's OAuth 2. And I was like, there's so many names, and I have no idea what it is, and I could just go look it up. But I was like, hey, I'm about to have this conversation with these guys. I'll just have them tell me what problem is this solving. Because it doesn't make – like, it just is completely impenetrable to me. It's a lot of jargon. What is going on with this thing? This is very much not a nothing burger. <laughs> Okay. Um, <laughs> yes. It uh, true, but it's also it's also one that I and it's one I took a long time to understand myself because I think most of the resources and terminology around it are quite bad, especially when like if you try to read anything about it, you will hear people talk about user agents a lot and be like, "What yep. does that mean?" And so the, the terminology confuses things because user agent literally means browser, and you can like. Put other stuff out of your mind, but I'm the basic idea of OAuth. I would say is to allow. Let's see, OAuth stands for Open Authentication. By the way, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll basically just give an example directly from what we do with Handmade Network, which is we want to allow people to link their Discord account to their Handmade Network account which means that we want the Handmade Network website, that whole code base, to be able to actually make requests to Discord on a user's behalf in order to fetch their messages or fetch their profile picture or whatever it is, right? And how, how do you do that? Right. If you start thinking through how you would implement that, like the naive thing is like, I guess they just give me their discord password, but obviously nobody wants to do that. This is terrible, right? Like that gives them full, you know, that would give us on the handmade network website, full access to their discord account, free reign to like just impersonate them, do whatever we want with them. Right. Change their password. And, and, <laughs> right. Change it to completely take over their account. Right. They're, they're completely owned. We, we are them. We can do anything. So that's, that's obviously a no, nobody is going to want to put their password, like just plain, just here, here's my password, do what you want with it. But the question is then how can you actually 
achieve this sort of indirect permission thing <laughs> where we on the, in the handmade network code base only have access to one particular user's resources. And, and also how is it that like other sites also don't have access to that other user's things? Like you need to have like this specific but indirect permission situation, okay. which is weird. <laughs> Okay. Yes. Can can I can I state that back to you again? Because I'm piecing that together with where I've seen it come up, and I think I can explain what problem it is solving based on what you've said now. Which is the web programs are these programs that, as we've been saying, involve not only running code and data, but a set of relationships to other web programs. And so, for instance, you on the Handmade Network website have a feature which is a interaction with mm-hmm. a discord feature essentially and you and discord are two ser- ser- like separate servers and we've already talked about how through http apis and webhooks you two can cooperate and through secrets and and public keys you can cooperate without anyone else being able to pretend to be one of you or the other but now there's a third yeah and that will authenticate the 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 right. program it'll say right right program so i can be sure that if i'm the handmade network website that discord is the one talking to me and it's not brett hacking me mm-hmm. but also i can yeah. be discord and be sure that it's a handmade network that's talking to me and not you know alan get hacking discord right it, neither of those things can happen because you got the secrets and we know which which servers talking to each other but then mm-hmm. a third party comes along and that's the user of yeah. this sort of combined program and and you're saying that the problem to solve now is how do we get that user the give them the ability to grant limited permission to have a handmade network to do yes. stuff with their discord so that is yeah so okay. so the basic idea is that the discord is going to generate some kind of unique token that they give to us on the handmade network website that is scoped down to just that user's stuff. And so when we include that as our credential on any API request that we make, we will be allowed to access those specific things for that user and nothing else and no other user's stuff. That's not really any different fundamentally, right? That's just like another you know, special token that we need to get somehow. The difficult part is actually acquiring that token because you need to do some kind of song and dance between the different services where the user like first goes to our site and initiates the thing and then goes over to Discord to like confirm that yes, they do want to do this thing. And we can't be in charge of that part of the process. And the Discord can't be in charge of our part of the process. <laughs> and so there's there's this back and forth. And and so there's there's this sort of triangle of requests that happen where the <laughs> yeah it, it gets hold, hold on before you map it out i'm gonna i'm gonna also paint over that again to make sure i'm following yeah okay so the idea is if only the handmade network had an api token with this magical property that it could access a sliver of alan's discord then you guys could grab the stuff that i'm okay with you grabbing but not mess with the rest of my account and so if you could yep. get that API token, then we're done. The rest of the problem 
is getting you the API token in such a way that all parties have had a chance to make sure that this is a legitimate and not a fraudulent mm -hmm. acquisition of the token. Yes. Right, because, because for example, we can't... It, it, it's not good if we can just forge the token without Discord being involved or the user being involved, right? Like, the user and Discord both have to confirm, like, yes, we do want the Handmade Network to have this access. Right, because, because, because it can't just be that I give you permission, because then Discord doesn't know that I gave you permission. Right. Yeah. And Discord might want to say, Handmade Network is not allowed to touch our users. They've done some jacked up <laughs> stuff. Right. Or, or the user may want to, like, get in there and say, no, I don't want them to be able to access well, my profile photo or this or that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a crappy solution, which is Discord could have a UI in there where I could go in and copy a, a big API key and give it and paste it into Handmade Network and say, like, this, I'm manually handing to the Handmade Network mm -hmm. an API key mm -hmm. from Discord. Yeah. And now I've been, ex Discord explained to me explicitly that if I give anyone this key, they're going to be able to read my messages on the Handmade Network Discord server. Yeah. And then I gave it to you, and now you're able to read my messages yes. there. But of course, now all of our actual end users who are not necessarily developers are looking at API keys. Yes. And so, but, but you're, you've, you've already discovered the basic flow, which is that the user has to go to Discord and then the user has to take something to Handmade Network and give it to Handmade Network. It doesn't go directly between the two. The user is the mm -hmm. one doing it. Now, the user is not copy pasting. They're being redirected and stuff, right? There's, there's query parameters that are containing these actual tokens. And so then, so, so, but, but the, the basics of it are exactly that. Basically, okay. the, so the entire flow then is that like the user is going to go to handmade network and click the button that links their discord account. Now the user then goes to discord via these redirects and they fill out this form that says like, yes, I do want to grant access mm -hmm. to the account or something. Mm -hmm. and, and Discord then, can prompt them to log in at that point if they're not logged in. Yes. Right. Make sure Discord now wants to make sure that they're, yes. they're oh. talking to the right user. Yes. Discord now does the authentication, right? This is where the user can type their Discord password without us seeing it mm. because they are, they have just gone to discord.com and are typing their password, mm -hmm. right? But then instead of being taken into the app, they log in, they get back some kind of credential, and then they come back to Handmade Network and give us that credential. Through redirect. So, yeah. This all happens through redirect, so they're not copy-pasting these keys, right. but it's essentially the same thing, right? The user starts on our site, they go to Discord, they go back to us. The only remaining piece of it is that then there is like one final check where we can talk directly to Discord using our special connection to say, hey, somebody gave me this key. Is this legit? Mm -hmm. um, so there's that one final verification. Ah. But that's it. I mean, that's that's the entire process. Discord can also reject that key at any point, be like, this is no longer valid. Oh, yeah. Yes, and that's important too because that's how like when you go into you know the settings for some account and say like, 
why does Handmade Network have access to my Discord account? Deny. And now that token right. stops working. Discord, you know. That 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 allows Discord, I mean, in one story, it allows Discord to say they don't like Handmade Network anymore. But it also allows Discord to provide the feature to the user of managing the permissions yeah. into the future. Right? It's not like a permanent key that if Discord, if Discord fails to provide that UI, then once I've granted the Handmade Network permission, I have to make a whole new Discord account if I want to revoke it again whereas that ability to like say you know what this OAuth key we're not going to acknowledge it from the handmade network anymore is how they implement revoking permissions i suppose there's one other piece of it which is all of that makes sense why is it an open authentication standard instead of something that is invented by every like what does is there a reason along the way why discord couldn't have made up their own system and every other service made up their own system where having this an open authentication standard solves a problem, or is it just like less design work and less confusion every time this comes up? Or less coding, you can just use a library. Be like, hey, I want to OAuth with this website. Here's here's the URL. Here's the the uh, my secret that I need to send to them to make to let them say, yeah, I'll, I'll prove this. And then like even if you didn't use that library, you could still write reusable code for all the fifty different services you use. So it's really nice having the standard that doesn't require you to code differently for everything. Yeah, it, the main thing, it provides it provides common terminology for mm-hmm. the different parts of this process so that if, for example, you do want to offer, I mean, say that, say that you actually want to do like a, a login with third party type of thing where you're going to have login with Discord, login with Google. Say that, say that you're going to do, I'll, I'll stick to just Discord and Google because you only really need two for this, right? If both of them are following this same OAuth process, then you have common terminology and common database columns got to store all of this stuff, right? You've got the same process where you're going to um, send, where, where the user is going to come back with some particular token. You're going to send that token back to some other service to verify it. You're going to save that token and possibly other peripheral things for like refreshing it. Um, and, and those things are named and standardized so that they can be consistent across services. And there's probably also an extent to which it's just a good convention too, because people did implement worse versions of this kind of thing in the past that would be Mm -hmm. missing critical properties. So coming up with kind of a a standard name for it helps, (laughs) but it doesn't, OAuth prescribes less than most people think. It doesn't prescribe a particular format for the tokens, for example. Okay. Um, the the actual, you know, they're just as far as OAuth is concerned, it's just some opaque string that you're going to be handing around. Uh, with that, I've covered everything that has stumbled. I've stumbled into so far. Uh, I've taken up quite a bit of your time, guys, and thank you so much for taking the time to give me this crash course. I'm I'm very grateful. It's been super fun. Before I let you guys go, you guys do cool stuff. Where should people go to check out uh, stuff you guys are up to? I mean, my personal website is bevisness.me, and I post there infrequently, but I hope the things I post are good. And most of my actual time is spent with the Handmade Network. So handmade.network and all the various initiatives and things that we're doing there. Um, you can find me at brethudson.com. That's Brett with one T. I, I should really just go buy Brett with two T's 
hudson.com and just redirect <laughs> it. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, this was awesome. Yeah, this is really fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Take care.